Welcome to this week's Surface Transport edition of the Benari Podcast. Today we are joined by the Secretary of Transportation at the Maryland Department of Transportation, Greg Slater. Greg, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm really excited to be here on the podcast. No, we really appreciate you being part of the show. And, you know, today's episode, we're going to get an insight into an incredibly important light rail project, you know, the Purple Line and, you know, an overview, um, you know, and some of the commitments that are going on and everything in terms of the restart um, and also what it will bring to the community. So to kick us off, you know, you know, what is the Purple Line for our viewers? Great. You know, it's a project. It's a lot of fun to work on. And, you know, when you look at the diverse infrastructure needs nationally, you know, we're trying to push forward with some kind of innovative and transformational solutions to better connect our system. And, you know, the Purple Line is a great example of that. It's a 16.2-mile light rail line that's going to connect the Washington, D.C. suburbs in Montgomery County with those in Prince George's County. So just inside the Capitol Beltway, uh, if you look at the map, it's those kind of north and west portions of D.C.'s immediate suburbs that we're going to connect. You know, if you look historically on the Purple Line, uh, light rail line, it's uh, consistently been supported since the early planning in the 90s and the 2000s. You know, the project stemmed primarily from a growing vehicle congestion on the 495 Capitol Beltway and from the lack of transit options between two economic centers of Bethesda and Silver Spring outside of DC. You know, so while, you know, historically we had bus options along that alignment available, the routes are just not direct and were too time consuming. So most of our DC Metro rail lines run directly to DC while this was really the first one to want to run radially and connect those metro lines outside of that. So, you know, currently, if you're an individual wanting to travel from DC Metro Rail from Bethesda to Silver Spring, you have to go all the way to downtown in the city and then come back out. So the right. Purple Line is really focused on closing that gap and providing an equitable and sustainable long-term solution to that congestion that we see. You know, the rail line itself is primarily at grade uh, it travels along this exclusive dedicated right-of-way for about 15 miles, and then it's in mixed traffic for about a mile and a half. It, it, the alignment itself uh, will go over three aerial structures and eight bridges and through uh, one short tunnel. So it's going to have 21 stations along the route and provide those connections to the metro rail lines in D.C., but also with Amtrak and our local and regional bus routes. So, you know, Really interesting part of this is the, the cars that we're using, the rail cars that we're using. It's a five unit modular light rail vehicle spanning about 140 feet, as opposed to that 75 foot Metro train. And they're safe and quiet, electrically powered uh, with low floors for easily boarding and uh, allowing passengers to access without actually having to climb stairs. That's amazing. And it's incredibly unique, this project as well, because well, the project itself has received national attention for being the first U.S. light rail project to rely on well private financing or a mix of private and public financing in regards to a P3 project. Now, some people have said that this is an example of what can go wrong on a big transit using public-private partnerships. Um, is that really fair? I, I don't think that's fair at all. I think the I think the model is the right model. And it's the right model for this project. When you think about, you know, we talk a lot about innovation, but when you think about innovation, you don't always think about that in the ways of financing. So, you know, this P3 agreement that we have is structured using a 30-year availability payment model, construction financing coming from federal, state, and kind of local governments, 
as well as private debt and equity. So if you look at the construction financing today, you know, we have 900 million plus in federal grants, uh, as well as formula funding. We have state funding in construction. Uh, we have grants that are kind of be received through that full funding grant agreement with FTA. But there's also 300 million plus in private activity bonds, uh, 870 million in TIFIA, and another 138 million in private equity. Without that in the mix, we wouldn't be able to deliver this project now. And so, you know, when you think about the innovative side, you're trying to deliver these big infrastructure projects, you have to think differently. You can't do them all at one time. You know, if you look just at our state as an example, you know, we have this massive collection of transportation infrastructure that came online decades ago. And so now we all have to keep it up at the same time. You know, the interstates were built in the early 60s and late 50s. Our commuter rail came online in the 80s, our light rail in the 90s. You know, we have to keep that up and, and that takes a lot of resources and money. So, you know, we felt like uh, we had a really strong history of P3s and we're currently in the middle of two of the biggest uh, in the nation right now, but leveraging that private sector funding to complement our public contributions on infrastructure gives us greater flexibility and capacity beyond our, our program limitations. So one leveraging the other. In, in every P3, the different financing as well as the project delivery functions are shared between public and private sectors. But on the purple line, you know, we, we've over a billion completed in construction today uh, and moving forward, but looking at those tax exempt private bonds and, and those types of things, all leveraging each other. You know, when you look at the variety of P3 models out there, you know, the design, build, finance, operate, and maintain model, it's a type of P3 that's been used on rail projects in Canada and abroad, uh, and was even uh, used here in Denver with the Denver Eagle project uh, several years ago. But looking at you know, where we are in the process, you know, it was just kind of, we had a lawsuit and those types of things kind of derailed us for lack of a better term for a little while. But the focus here was making sure we had the right partner. And when you have the right partner, you're going to be able to go through those challenges and weather through that. And we feel like we have, you know, they're, we're currently in the selection process for that new lead construction contractor. We're expecting to have them on board in September. We're working through the risk matrix now. You know, the risk profile on the project is very different than it was in 2016. But also positively, the interest rates are very different than they were in 2016. So trying to take advantage and, and look what we can get for the best value. But, you know, as we're laying out that final financing structure, uh, really looking at that winning price for that re-solicited design build contract. But in return for operating and maintaining the project at a specific level of service with the financing and the design and construction was really the right model for us because it gives us that predictable operating environment over a 30-year structure, but it also gives us a predictable financing payment model over a 30-year structure. You know, DOTs, we can deal with uh, predictable funding models. What really messes us up is the unexpected big cost. And so you know, the majority of construction costs today are gonna be financed by federal TIPI alone and the remainder through private activity bonds and, and those types of things and equity. But the, the greatest thing about, about federal TIPI loans is, is that low cost financing and we can maximize that benefit and deliver that for us now. And we're already seeing that in the opportunity up and down the corridor. Definitely, and looking forward to that restart as well, which will hopefully be in, in the fall. 
And, you know, in regards to the wider community as well, you know, what are the future benefits of having this line? You mentioned the decrease in congestion, you know, taking cars off the road and really getting commuters onto this new line. You know, what are the other benefits? You know, it's really, it's ridership, it's decreasing congestion, but it's also about the environment and the economic development opportunities that come with it. Already, we've seen approximately $2 billion in economic development along the Purple Line Corridor under construction. And so you're looking at you know, over 66,000 jobs directly created over the course of Purple Line construction. But when complete, it's going to connect all those other transit lines and create that job accessibility uh, matrix that we're really looking for, closing that gap to create that. So you know, when you look at ridership, you know, our Purple Line, we're projected at about 59,000 uh, in ridership at startup, and we'll be at 74,000 by 2040. So if you look at kind of weekday, our peak periods, we're going to be running as part of our P3, seven and a half minutes uh, headways uh, during the peak periods uh, up and running. So it's going to take our estimates, 17,000 cars off the road every single day and save uh, a million gallons in fuel uh, consumption annually. So you know, the electric power that we're focused on the purple line means, you know, no emissions to that immediate environment. And, and we used the existing right of way. So it was really minimal impact on the land and the resources around it. You know, we worked really hard in the planning phase to see where we could, when we needed to run on roadway, you know, where we could repurpose and, and take away a travel a lane, travel lane and, and repurpose that to minimize that footprint, a little bit of a road diet to add a transit solution and an existing roadway footprint. Well, look, I'm excited to see the project restart. And look, thank you again for speaking with us, Greg. Absolutely. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.